You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Monday, June 1st, 2020, just after market close here in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington here in New York, joined shortly by Ed Harrison from Washington, D.C. But first, Jack Farley with Market News. Thanks, Ash. Today, the manufacturing PMI was reported in the U.S., and it came in at 39.8, just shy of expectations. A PMI below 50 means that economic activity was lower than last month. So this 39.8 reading indicates that U.S. manufacturing is still in contraction. This, as the S&P continues to perch comfortably above the 3,000 level. Meanwhile, China's PMIs were more hopeful. The manufacturing PMI coming in at 50.6, which was below expectations, while its composite came in at 53.4. China was the canary in the coal mine when the shocking drop of its PMIs in late February put the world on notice. But now that its manufacturing PMI is above 50 for the third straight month, It's evident that China has reached some sort of stasis. But for a true recovery, we're going to need to see those numbers go higher. The Eurozone manufacturing PMI rose to 39.4, indicating a continued contraction. Italy reclaimed some ground with a solid 45.4 reading. And Germany was the laggard with a dismal 36.6. As a result, the DAX was one of the few major equity indices that was sold off today as equities rallied worldwide. In other news, Goldman Sachs has raised its downside target for the S&P. In a report on Friday, Goldman amended their bottom for the index to 2750 from the 2400 level they forecasted in early May. The report reiterated Goldman's year-end target of 3000, but noted that a rally past the 3200 level is something they have their eye on. The analysts argued that, quote, monetary and fiscal support will likely limit downside risk to roughly 10%. So it's clear that these analysts are watching the Fed and Congress. That's unsurprising but they also have their eye on profit margins. They forecasted net profit margins to decline by 200 basis points to just 8.7%, the lowest level since 2010. But the report also indicated that sustained low interest rates will keep return on equity stable, citing the unusually high level of corporate bond issuance, roughly 1.1 trillion in investment grade so far this year, as evidence that funding for high quality companies shouldn't be a problem. On the valuation side, Goldman looked at key ratios for the S&P and found that, yes, on a price-to-book basis, the index is quite rich, but that factoring in return on equity, the S&P 500 isn't actually that overpriced. It should, of course, be noted that this model hinges on consensus estimates about earnings growth and a V-shaped recovery in general. So the headline for the day is, Uninspiring PMIs Fail to Deter a Global Equity Market. Meanwhile, investment bank analysts scramble to retroactively adjust their somewhat bearish call in order to adjust their narrative to the new normal. And with that, let's go back to Ash and Ed. Welcome, Ed. Good, good morning, or I should say good afternoon. It's uh, 4 p.m. just after market close. So uh, it's been a tough week, a tough weekend, in fact. Yes, a very difficult weekend for the country. Uh, what are you looking at today, Ed? So what I'm looking at is I'm looking at the numbers, but I'm also looking at it uh, in regard to previous episodes of 
tensions, uh, violence, riots that have happened in the past and trying to get a sense of whether there's any market moving nature to the things that are going on right now. Yeah. So what sort of specific historical context are you examining when you think about where we are today? Yeah, so I'm I'm looking at three different crises that we're going through right now. And so I would describe it as one, an economic crisis, first and foremost, when we're thinking about markets and the economy. And so when you look at the drop off in uh, employment numbers and when you look at the drop off in GDP, you can't really see anything in the recent past until you go back to the Great Depression. So there's that as the bogey, if you will, to compare on an economic basis. But then we also have a second crisis, which is the viral pandemic. And in terms of things that have hit the global economy, things that have hit the United States, there's nothing that compares, again, until you get back to uh, 1918 with the Spanish flu, the, the flu seasons of 1918, 1919. Now, that's not to say either of those two preceding events are like what we're doing now, but it's just to say that in terms of order of magnitude, there's nothing that we can see until we look back to 90 or 100 years. But now we're looking at a third crisis, I would say, and that's this volatility, social volatility, violence. And so a lot of people are looking back at different sorts of activity that's been like that in the past. There was obviously the Rodney King incidents. We saw in a global way in 1968, not just in the United States, but in Europe and elsewhere, uh, violence of that nature, a cultural clash. But I would also go back and I would talk about the 1932 uh, Bonus Army, the uh, Bonus Army camps that happened here in the D.C. area as a, a bogey. So we're looking at all three of those things together. Yeah. You know, those of us who remember the Rodney King uh, riots in Los Angeles know that it was a much more highly localized uh, scenario than what we're looking at now. I mean, I, I think it was 27 metro areas uh, I saw over the weekend at one point were currently experiencing a significant civil unrest, I think was the number. That's a that's a significant number. Right. Yes. And, you know, we're also talking about uh, not just unrest, but just protest in general, because you, you people are pent up, they're penniless because of the pandemic and the unemployment. And then on top of that, you have these uh, this strife. So when I say protests, we're talking about New Zealand, we're talking about Copenhagen, uh, we're talking about uh, Berlin. So it, it, there's a global sort of solidarity on that front. And I think that the closest thing I can think of in the recent past is probably 1968 there. And and then the question is, is does it really matter? Because when we looked at the markets today, just starting in Asia, first and foremost, they were up. Uh, they were up in Europe across the board. I, th I think the DAX was down today. But uh, your uh, U.S. markets were up most all of the day. So you know, at least on a very localized one day level, it has no significance. But then the question is, is what sort of significance does it have in terms of the economic performance of the United States, of the global economy? And is it a, is it a signpost for the, the, the economy going forward? Yeah. You know, to that point, let's just recap markets. So uh, the Dow closed today at uh, 25, 475. Uh, Essentially, I would call it flat, up about uh, 
three uh, three tenths of a percent, three and a half tenths of a percent. S and P closed the thirty fifty five level. Uh, that's up zero point three eight percent. Nasdaq rose a little bit more, zero point six six percent, and um, the VIX up to twenty eight twenty five. These are relatively flat numbers, I would say. Right. Yes. And so, you know, what I would say is the thing that I would find I find the most interesting, actually, is the 1968 parallel, because for me, that's where social unrest I look at as being a marker, a sign of the top of the market in terms of the economy. So if you think back to the bear market, secular bear market, a lot of people started in 1968. Uh, the market actually did go up after the protests and the riots in 68. Uh, it ended the year up, but that was really the, the beginning of a very long secular bear market. Some people market it 1966. But over that, that time span, the markets traded pretty much sideways while inflation was ravaging your nest egg. And so it was a brutal bear market on an inflation adjusted basis for most people, people losing 50, 60. And I think in at points in places like Ireland, when I looked at the indices in uh, the 1970s, 80 and 90 percent. So what we're seeing or what we saw in 1968 was is, is that that era climaxed. The post-World War II era climaxed in the mid-60s, and the 68 uh, riots, the 68 protests, that marked an apogee and in the beginning of a secular bear market. So the question is, is that the same sort of thing that we're seeing today, especially when we're looking at 20% unemployment in the United States, that this these protests are a manifestation of uh, uh, angst, that has built up over a long period of time. Yeah, and uh, obviously it's worth pointing out that 1968, those were intensely political times. The f key flashpoint there being the Democratic National Convention in Chicago uh, after the assassination of, uh, of uh, Robert Kennedy. Uh, you know, the, I guess the idea is that they are uh, times where the, the riots, the civil unrest are, are irretrievably read, wed to uh, the political context. And, and of course, uh, and of course, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, intensely. And, and let me say, by the way, uh, you know, because I went to Columbia Business School, that you know, Columbia at that time, uh, people took over. You know, they held hostage uh, the uh, the the administration there. Students, people, you know, they went to jail. They were kicked out. Uh, you saw the same thing in Paris and in other places, this student revolt, this revolt against the draft in, in 1968 uh, and, and the anti-Vietnam War. That was, as I said, this was the climax of a whole period of post-World War II baby boom. And that's when the baby bust uh, was starting to take hold. Yeah. And, and to your point about Colombia, uh, this was not something that went back to normal. Uh, uh, when uh, the sun rose in the morning. This was something that was a, a state where there was literally a state of siege. Uh, it's a bit, a few blocks north of where I am now, uh, but it did not abate. So significantly more serious uh, in terms of the situation on the ground at, uh, in New York City uh, in 1968 than it is today. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking at it in that context. And so then the question is, uh, what do we see in the real economy data? 
Uh, One thing I thought was very interesting, just from a real economy data perspective, in terms of uh, the markets as you move forward, say, three months or six months, is the Citigroup Economic Surprise Index. And I was looking at just the index, not how it correlates to other assets. But uh, Ed Yardini, he puts out every day, uh, he gives us an update on the on the surprise index. And if you look at the index, it's interesting to to note that uh, first of all, the the index was going up uh, through 2019, and then it had a big fall down in that period where people were talking about the yield curve being inverted and the potential for a recession. But the index only hit sort of the zero percent marker. It wasn't one of those. Uh, low uh, levels that you see that are typically associated with recessions. And then it moved up uh, substantially at the beginning of the year. You could make the claim actually that the U.S. economy, because this is the U.S. uh, surprise index, was actually uh, moving out of the malaise that caused the yield curve to invert and that we were actually in sort of a bullish mode when, you know, that's when the markets actually went up in February. So at the beginning of the year, the economy was going through a spurt, and then it, it, you know, the the uh, the bottom dropped out, and we went way down. Uh, and just recently, actually, the city surprise index has gone up. It's not gone up to zero, but relative to where it is, uh, it's much higher. So what it says to me is is that this has given some localized, that is, near-term support to the markets to the degree that the markets can't see earnings out further because there's a lot of uncertainty about earnings. And that's sort of a, uh, a safety net for the market in terms of giving it support uh, going forward. Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting. I was thinking uh, in, in sort of similar ways, you said uh, the point that clued me in uh, was that it hasn't gone up to zero yet. And um, I'm, I was looking at earlier the uh, ISM manufacturing index that will give you the numbers. Uh, the print here was uh, 43.1 uh, for May. Uh, prior was 41.5. Uh, consensus was 42.7. So above consensus at 43.1. Here's what I find interesting about this. I, I saw a series of headlines, a ser- series of leads that seemed to suggest uh, that this was a really sort of positive state of affairs. I apologize, there's a fire engine going by outside. But the, the idea was that, well, you know, these numbers are rising, they're off their lows. Look, Diffusion indices are not stocks. When a diffusion index is below 50, it means contraction on a month-over-month basis. So what we're seeing here uh, is the ISM manufacturing index contracting at a slightly slower rate relative to the month before. This is not something that we should be excited about, uh, thinking about this as uh, you know potentially green shoots. These are really dismal numbers. Uh, you're looking at uh, an index that's uh, almost seven full points below the level to stay flat on a month over month basis. This is not great data. Yeah, but you know the 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 counter argument to that is that actually you beat consensus. You beat consensus on the ISM, you beat consensus on the market PMIs both in Europe and in in China. Actually right. China was above 50 and yeah. you know the PMI data out of the US, you also beat uh, the consensus there. So then the question is, how much of that is priced in? How much is the consensus on the economic data consistent with where the market is now, or uh, is there is there more to come? That is over the near term. And then we have to look through that and then decide, you know, h- how much of that is a a linear extrapolation of what we're seeing now 
uh, back towards the 100% level that we always talk about where we don't think that we're going to be able to get to. And, and what does that trickle through in terms of earnings? Because to the degree that you know, you can't leverage up and, and buy back shares. Obviously, if the economy is growing at a slower level or it's at a lower base, you're not going to be able to uh, to increase your earnings per share. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That is exactly the counter argument. Um, I guess my feeling is it's just hard for me to look at it and see a glass half full kind of scenario here when I see what seems to me at least to be very clearly additional risk coming on to the table uh, in terms of uh, civil or social unrest, uh, you know, in the form of, frankly, riots. Um, and when you look at these numbers, just the, the mechanics of the way the actual numbers themselves function, it's like, well, we, we beat consensus. Uh, I mean, what does that mean, right? It means that the consensus uh, was that, um, you know, that it was going to contract at, uh, at a particular rate and it contracted slightly less than the rate that it was expected to contract every month these get lower and lower and lower and you're always dealing with a diminishing base when these things continue to go down month on month on month so i guess when i look at it i, I just see relative to um what seems to be the, just the tone of the of the of the news flow um, and and the reaction of equity markets, uh, it seems to me to be a little bit more optimistic than I think the mechanics of the data would suggest. Right. Yes, I, I would agree with that. I would say that if you just look at it on a global basis, that is, you know, when you look at 20 percent, 25 percent unemployment in the United States and you think the market's only down 10 percent, you have to come to the, the view that the market is not aligned with the likely economic impact that you're going to have based upon those that 20, 25% unemployment number. And so what we should see is, is we should see uh, some hits to the economy uh, and to the markets going forward. But you know, let me caveat that for a second because I thought it was interesting. I showed you earlier today a second chart for the Citigroup Surprise Index. That was the Citigroup Economic Surprise Index versus the 10-year U.S. Treasury bond yield. And I thought it was kind of interesting how they tracked one another over time, at least according to the the numbers that Ed Yardini had put out. You know, there was the surprise index. And then there was the 10-year yield on a 13-week change of basis. And what, it, and what this chart was suggesting is that to the degree that the surprise index moves up or down, you know, the second derivative, you're going to also get uh, a change in 10-year uh, uh, U.S. Treasury bonds in the same direction, meaning that bond yields go up when the surprise index goes up and they go down when the surprise index goes down. And this is how I'm thinking about it, just from a framework perspective, is, is that what that's signaling to you is, is, is the, the taking the tail risk off the table, the likelihood that the Fed in the future will raise interest rates over that interim period of time. So what they're saying is, is that the bootstrap yield curve all the way out to 10 years now has more figures in it with rising interest rates at the, uh, the base rate level. And so that causes the 10-year uh, rate to go up. And, and so that, that's what's been happening now as well, is, is, is that the number, the, the differential from three months ago is actually now starting to move in, in the direction of the, the consensus, the, the surprise. And so what that would suggest is, is that, again, markets are discounting slightly better times ahead based upon 
the 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 uh, the economic data having bottomed. Yeah, I hope we were able to show that chart on screen because the correlation is pretty extraordinary. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting. Uh, I looked actually to see to what degree the Citigroup Surprise Index, uh, just statistically speaking, is useful in terms of looking at economic data going forward. And I didn't see anything that, it, the only thing I saw suggested that the correlation actually was relatively weak. So I wouldn't, even though the data looked good, I wouldn't necessarily put my, uh, I wouldn't say that this is telling me that in the next three months, we should expect the market to continue to go to, to move higher. And I, I should also caution that, you know, it's been very weak volume. Today was very weak volume in terms of the uh, the move higher. And the selling that we saw at the beginning during the liquidity crisis was heavy selling volume. My view is basically that the, the market is because of the lack of certainty about economic data is really narrowed its focus uh, to a very limited time frame. And so it's saying we can only forecast to a certain degree and we're going to take that data. Uh, and if it beats consensus, then that's positive. If it doesn't beat consensus, then it's negative. And so we're just going to go with that until we get through this uncertain period. And it's the, it's, it's the period after this uncertainty. Let's call that, you know, beyond three months. That's when we will have the reckoning. Yeah. You know, that's so interesting because it, it almost comes back to my earlier question, which is to what extent are the consensus numbers uh, almost arbitrary at this point? Yeah. I mean, th at this point, I think that we really just don't know. For instance, the 2Q, the Q2 numbers for GDP in the United States, 30% down, 40% down year over year. I mean, those are that's a big difference. And we have that wide a dispersion in terms of what people are talking about. That, so even in the near term, you have a certain degree of uncertainty. You have that dispersion, but obviously you have the consensus. And if you beat consensus, then the market rallies on that. It, that sort of dynamic is positive, especially during this reopening period, because you, you, you're, you're uh, bottoming in terms of economic data. But once we get into a real opening, which will be September, October, then I think things will be quite a bit different. And then we'll be able to actually see whether the market uh, is overpriced and how it reacts in, in real time. And those are always the fun months of the year, September and October. Yeah, historically, that's been where the action has been concentrated. You know, uh, some of the things that you said got me thinking uh, about the ask me anything that we did on Friday and then the RVDB, uh, especially good comments. Uh, we got uh, suggestions, analysis, really interesting uh, and well thought out uh, comments that we saw over the weekend. Uh, and it's gotten me thinking about uh, someone asked the question, uh, one of the subscribers, uh, about what I thought the what we all, what we each thought were the the three potential worst case scenarios, uh, and I said three things. I said number one, uh, a second wave of the virus. Uh, number two, uh, the potential for wide scale civil unrest, uh, mm -hmm. and number three, the potential for escalating tension uh, with China. And I'm curious now, as I think through, so we we've seen uh, you know today uh, in uh, Hong Kong uh, that uh, police denied an application for uh, the, it's the, like the 30, 30 years standing uh, anniversary uh, remembrance of the Tiananmen Square uh, massacre 
in Hong Kong. Uh, they denied an application for a candlelight vigil, which is apparently a very significant social thing in Hong Kong, uh, claiming uh, that there's too much virus risk. Uh, whether or not you believe that probably is uh, in some sense a function of what your view of China is. But what's interesting to me is the relationship between the first and the second. You know, We have wide-scale protests in this country, at very least, uh, at the moment, and we did over the weekend, and to what extent that potentially elevates the risk of a second wave of the virus. It's very difficult to socially distance during a protest and presumably uh, even more difficult to socially distance during a riot. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious, uh, and perhaps a better word uh, than curious would be apprehensive about what the potential risks are now for a resurgence uh, from COVID-19. But you know, even uh, disregarding COVID-19, there's the fact that uh, you're not really going to go out on a shopping spree when the stores are busted up and there's the potential that you could get caught up in some sort of riotous activity, right? You know, let me just give you an example from yeah. my own backyard. Literally, you know, half a mile down the road, uh, there was a store uh, uh, that people, rioters, were trying to uh, break into and uh, bust up. The local grocery store just down the road from there was also the windows were cracked. They stopped uh, people from being able to ransack that place. So it's it hits very close to home. How do I feel about that in terms of am I going to go shopping there? Just you know, walking down the street and decide to go and get me some uh, some wine. You know, because this is where we fill up uh, every two or three weeks. We get a few bottles of wine. I should say actually several bottles of wine to be honest with you. And and go there and come back, you know. You think twice about those kinds of activities. So I think you combine that with the fact that there are reports that Apple has closed some stores, uh, that Amazon has talked about delayed deliveries, et cetera. And then there's the psychological impact over a longer period of time. It definitely will slow the reopening at at a minimum in the United States, if not uh, in other places as well. So it does have an impact beyond COVID-19. And I, I would also say, with regard to the AMA and the RBDB that we did, one of the questions that we asked was, how should we talk about political economy, you know, the, the these types of events? And the answer was, uh, that we've come up with is we talk about in terms of the markets. We talk about talk about in terms of economics and the markets. Is there any real impact uh, rather than wading into what I would consider to be the fractious debate about what side are you on on these political topics? And that's how we're going to do it here at Real Vision, uh, I think, for the for the foreseeable future. Uh, let me know what you think about that. But that's my take on it. No, I think that's exactly right. Uh, I couldn't have said it better myself. The fractious debate is something that's very difficult uh, to weigh into. I, you know, I've spent uh, a weekend uh, with, um, you know, potentially uh, having people send you messages that maybe you don't want to read. I, I see friends who agree with each other, who seem to be arguing about the language in which they agree. This is a very difficult time, and our remit is to focus on markets. And to the extent that this story is about markets, we're going to be there. So, you know, the way I would look at it then, it, sort of to wrap up on my comments for today, is that I see it as the market is, there's so much uncertainty in the market that it has a very limited window in, to, in terms of what it's looking. To the degree that you have economic surprises that are to the upside, 
that's positive for the market. But we're not going to we're not seeing very high volume. There's not a high level of conviction to those moves. It's only once we get through this reopening period and then we get to the backside where we know for sure that we have reopened. This is relatively normal times. These earnings suggest this is the go forward look. That's when we will see, you know, uh, uh, the the big reaction. So you get that July, August lull when people go to the beach and it's the summer, and then September, October when people come back. That's when they're in in a refreshed state of mind to reanalyze and to reassess where we are. I think that's when we'll get the big hits. And so that's the message I would leave with. The last thing that I would ask is. You know, for you, Ash, when you think of uh, one other thing that we were talking about during the AMA is, you know, what piece of information on our platform, what interview on our platform did you see over the last few days that you think that the viewers of RVDB should take a look at? Uh, which which interview is it and uh, and what did you get out of it? Well, I actually uh, really enjoyed the interview uh, with Raul and Bill Tai. Um, who is uh, a, a Silicon Valley uh, venture capitalist. He is a really fascinating interview. I think it does uh, what really great long-form interviews do so well. It tells a story. It tells a narrative. Uh, the story about someone who uh, is a chip designer by training, uh, Silicon engineer effectively, uh, and telling the story about his transition into banking uh, and venture capitalism, and then telling the story of um, of effectively progress in Silicon Valley, the tremendous strides that have been made in information technology, uh, and understanding the context of it uh, from an economic perspective, from a technical perspective, from a social perspective. Uh, maybe I just loved it because it was such an optimistic story <laughs> in a time where I felt, uh, and the world probably feels we could really need one. Yeah, I think uh, that's a good place to end it. I really felt he was optimistic. I felt refreshed and and positive once I, I saw the interview as a takeaway. And I thought he was a really great explainer as well. Yeah, a very good explainer in terms of if you're not uh, a technical person, I think he's really great at framing these highly technical issues in ways that people with uh, finance backgrounds or general business backgrounds can understand. So we're back at it again on uh, Tuesday, Ash. Hopefully the situation will be a little bit more calmed down, but uh, stay safe and it was great talking to you today. Stay safe, Ed. Have a good night. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.